Hi, I'm Trevor. And I'm Laura. We're married, and we like to do a lot of different things together. But what got us together initially was that we love to eat and we like to drink. And we love to learn how our favorite foods and beverages came to be. In each episode of this podcast, we'll talk about something delicious and answer the question, Where did this come from? Should we get started? Let's do it. I guess we should probably get started. Um, hey there, everybody. Welcome to Where Did This Come From, uh, the podcast where we talk about something delicious every episode and kind of discuss the origins. Uh, my name's Trevor. I'm here with my much better half and my wife, Laura. Laura? Should we, like, not say things at the same time? <laughs> yes. Or I guess I shouldn't speak for you. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> my much better half. I'm Laura. All right. We're, we're so good at this. We're already finishing each other's. Sandwiches? Uh, you're in your own head now, uh, <laughs> sentences. But um, yes, yeah, so welcome to our podcast. This is the first episode of the podcast. If you couldn't tell by how we came into the show without knowing what exactly what we're doing. We did not practice. <laughs> uh, no, I think by design as well. Um, so yeah, this is the show where every episode we're going to be diving into something about food, drink, all the stuff that we love and love to share together as a couple, um, and also kind of find out the histories of them, where they came from, and things like that. So, uh, yeah. And but uh, why yeah. are we why are we doing this? <laughs> like why? Uh, well, I think like everyone else in the world right now, we are a little bored. <laughs> yes, uh, I think that's fair to say. We have been in our house for the last four and a half months, um, and you know, I think we really just needed a creative outlet. And something that we could do together. So we were kind of brainstorming and we thought of a podcast. Probably while uh, eating something or, or drinking something, most likely. It's all we really do these days. Yeah. And listening to one of our favorite podcasts. Yeah, that's that's probably true. So uh, how is the show going to work? Uh, so every episode, one of us is going to research a topic and then teach the other about that topic. And it's going to be anything that could be in the world of food and beverage. You know, spirits, beer, wine, dishes, cuisines from certain parts of the world. Uh, so for this week, for this episode, uh, I decided that I would research rum. So Laura, when I say rum, and I say oh, we're going to talk about rum today, like what's your first impression of all that? Uh, pirates. <laughs> pirates. Yeah, no, actually, think, uh, mine was too, to be honest with you. Well, I think just like the... I get a flashback to college and getting those like crappy handles of rum with like Captain Morgan or like Captain whoever, the knockoff brand. Yeah, not to say that Captain Morgan is a crappy product. Just in case right. they become a sponsor in the future. I don't know. <laughs> I'm guessing true. they won't be, but. Um, but no, I, I guess I, I think of, um, you know, the Caribbean. I think of, you know, pina coladas and mm -hmm. daiquiris. Sounds um, good right about now. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I yeah, go I mean, to immediately. I think that's it. That's the whole episode. That's everything. <laughs> We're that's done. Everything. No, I, uh, I'm kind of the same way. Like my first, my first impression was like super sugary cocktails and like ripping hangovers the next day from having too many of them. But there is a lot more to rum than that for sure. But going to the base of everything, uh, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, <laughs> rum is a distilled liquor made from sugarcane products usually produced as a byproduct of sugar manufacture. Uh, it includes both the light-bodied rums, typified by those of Cuba and Puerto Rico, and the heavier, full-flavored rums of Jamaica. Um, so, like, any sugar manufacturing site has, like, a rum connection. 
It could, yeah. Because, I mean, rum at, uh, at the base of everything, and we're going to talk a little bit about this too, is is really made as a byproduct of, of the sugar manufacturing. So a lot of rums historically were made from molasses, which is the byproduct of making uh, or processing sugarcane, I should say, into refined sugar. Uh, so like any other spirit out there, whether it's rum, tequila, anything like that, um, it's inspired culture way beyond the cocktail world. Uh, obviously like tiki bars of the forties, fifties, and sixties, Ernest Hemingway, the writing of Hemingway, he was notoriously a, a rum drinker. There's even a daiquiri, a Hemingway daiquiri named after him that he supposedly invested or invested, invented. He might've <laughs> invested, invested in rum, I'm not quite the, sure. the rum industry. Um, he did love Cuba, um, to like, you know. Jimmy Buffett is something that comes to mind when I think of rum a lot of the times too. But its history is also mired in a lot of stuff. Colonialism, um, unfortunately enslavement of people, uh, economic oppression, and even organized crime kind of coming out of the uh, coming out of the Prohibition era. So there's there's definitely some, you know, some lighthearted stuff and some some heavier stuff to talk about with rum here too. Um, so rum, they originated in the West Indies, and they're first mentioned in records from the island of Barbados from around 1650. Uh, but it's believed the first rums manufactured were around 30 years before that, around 1620. Uh, and actually, sugarcane isn't actually from that part of the world. So going way back, like 2,000 years before that to around 300, 350 BC, um, New Guinea was where sugarcane was first cultivated uh, and then first really fermented in India, which is not too far from New Guinea. But those first fermented drinks were primarily used um, medicinally, and they weren't really for getting drunk, really, or making cocktails off of, obviously. Probably more of a religious experience than anything else. Now, I'm obviously not going to go through 2,000 years of history, so let's flash forward a little bit. Yes, uh, we all know that Trevor probably could do that. I get a little I get a little wordy sometimes. <laughs> we might find my episodes being a little longer than Laura's, but we'll find out. Um, so let's flash forward to, like, the 1400s, so 15th century. That's really when, you know, the explorers we all learned about in, in grade school uh, started opening up the world's trade routes through all their explorations and conquering and things of that nature. Uh, so as that happened, remote islands began to be discovered, mainly in the West Indies, what we call today like the Caribbean. Um, and so it really was the perfect climate to bring the sugarcane over from the eastern part of the world and start growing it there. It's around that same kind of latitude. Climate. Yeah, exactly, around mm -hmm. that same climate. So the discovery of Barbados in the early 1600s was a really important gate to rum's like soon-to-be global popularity. And given that perfect climate of Barbados, uh, explorers from you know the the South American region um, by way of Portugal, so Brazil really, brought that sugarcane expertise. Uh, unfortunately, they also brought enslaved peoples with them. Uh, but most importantly, they brought the know-how of distillation because before this, sugarcane had only really been fermented. So much like beer or wine is fermented. Sugarcane was fermented, so it was almost like sugar wine at that point before this. Mm -hmm. now, Wait, it, so where did the dis, the mechanism for distilling come from? Europe. Europe. Yeah, so Europe are, uh, is kind of where distilling really started. Um, yeah, so that was brought to the, the new world. So they brought that technology over and were like, hey, we're going to try this with this sugar byproduct. Yeah, I mean, they at that point, brewing was well-known and winemaking was you know definitely well-known. They knew that you could turn sugar into alcohol um i'm not sure how in-depth their knowledge of like yeast was or anything like that i think most things were wild fermented or spontaneous fermented where it was like open air and the natural yeast in the air would then latch onto the sugars and turn them into into alcohol now it only took like 10 years for the sugar barons of barbados to become some of the richest in the world 
Um, and they were doing that with that prospering sugar and rum export industry because they were growing the sugar there. They were making the rum there from the byproduct. So it was almost all profit at that point. Now, rumor has it, the spirit was initially known as Kill Devil for its strong effects. <laughs> Kill That's Devil, harsh. yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it didn't taste great, right? It wasn't like it was a refined process like it is today. So the poor drank it straight, but others began mixing it with sugar, uh, lime, and other ingredients to make the earliest rum punches and cocktails around this time. So rum cocktails kind of started right around the same time rum started. So they've gone hand in hand the entire time. What year? Uh, it was around the around the mid 1600s, okay. around the same time. Oh, all right. Yeah. Getting after it. Yeah, exactly. Now, as as time went on, there's indications of the spirit also being referred to as uh, rumbulian or rumbustion, which are both words I just learned today. Ooh, I think we <laughs> but, should bring rumbustion back. Rumbustion, rumbustion. Yeah, I combustion, rumbustion. Cocktail. I like rumbulian, um, but. Maybe not, because both the terms mean upheaval or violent commotion. Oh, okay. Oops. Yeah, maybe not the best. Uh, you know, in this day and age, we're learning a lot. Yes. And uh, these origins of some of these naming conventions uh, sometimes have a dark history. So it's good to, to know. Why we don't call them these things anymore. Why we don't anymore. call them these things. Uh, yeah, so eventually, of course, it was shortened to just, uh, just rum. And we've got our, our modern naming for the, for the beverage we all know today. Um, so rum, I didn't know this, but whether you know it or not, helped shape the United States as we know it today and the Americas as a whole, because it was flowing through the politics and cuisines of countries from Jamaica to Brazil, all the way up through into, uh, the North American colony as well. So around the same time, around the mid 1600s, there were roughly about 3000 colonists living in New England, which is where coincidentally we are now and where we're from. Um, and when they first settled around 20 years earlier, when, you know, everyone knows the history of the pilgrims in 1620, landing Plymouth Rock and all that, uh, there were dreams of finding a Mediterranean bounty from this new world, but they landed in Massachusetts and <laughs> they didn't have much knowledge of the world or of the harsh climate of New England. Uh, and it really wasn't suitable for wines, grains, fruits, and like the valuable silks and gems that they were hoping to find by traveling westward. Sorry, guys. You yeah, did not land. Big swing and a miss. Uh, if anyone out there is from New England area, we definitely don't have silks and gems floating around. Now, it was a really tough revelation. And to make things worse, the horror, there was also a beer shortage in England. Now, of course, England would have taken like the, the priority over the New World settlers. Um, so this meant New Englanders weren't getting as much beer imported as they'd hoped to help soothe their their disappointments in not finding the... Uh, no gems, no, no beer. Yeah, no gems, no beer, no silk. Bummer. It's a nightmare. It's not unlike uh, today, except we've got much more beer. So they started to try to make alcohol from anything that grew there. So pumpkins, apples, twigs, really anything they could get their hands on, they were trying to turn it into alcohol. Um, <laughs> and some of it was actually successful, but nothing really scratched that itch, right? The way that the introduction of rum from Barbados and other Caribbean nations did... Um, because rum was much cheaper than the, the little bit of brandy that they were importing because of the shorter trade routes from, from the islands up to the New World, as opposed to like getting brandy in from Europe. Uh, and the cheaper ingredient of molasses, which again is the, the, the pretty much otherwise useless byproduct of sugar making, unless you're baking molasses chew cookies. <laughs> What's that? Pecan pie. Pecan pie, of course, the delicious pecan pie. I don't think there were many pecans in New England at the time, though. Maybe not, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was it was much cheaper, and it was a lot stronger 
than the brandy they were importing as well. So cheaper and stronger. So rum really quickly became the drink of choice in New England. I did not know that. I I didn't know that I either. I always imagine like the early settlers with their pint of beer in like those old little like cast iron beer mugs. Yeah, I mean there was beer. There definitely was beer, but it was definitely harder to come by. Yeah. Um, because there wasn't it's not we don't grow a ton of grain here right. to make beer, right? So they would have had to have gotten it from England. Yeah. No, it makes sense. I just I, I did not know that rum made an appearance with pilgrims. Yeah, I don't you think of images of the first Thanksgiving, you don't think of daiquiris and pina I know there weren't daiquiris and pina coladas, but you also don't think of people just chugging pitchers of rum either with turkey yeah. and stuffing, which I'm sure there wasn't actually turkey yeah, and stuffing like in the first Thanksgiving fake. either. So <laughs> we're gonna learn a lot about history uh, through a lot of this Hopefully. stuff too, like the real history of things. Um so soon after all this, they fell in love with rum, right? So the New Englanders got the idea to import molasses from the islands instead of the rum because it was a much cheaper import and just started distilling the molasses themselves. These Europeans had the knowledge of distilling coming from the old world. So they decided to import the molasses and start distilling themselves. So at this point now, it's like the late 1600s and towns around us like Salem, Newport, Boston, uh, and Medford became rum distillation epicenters with over a hundred distilleries in New England alone by the 1700s, specifically rum distilleries. That's it. It was like 150 to 160 rum distilleries in the really? small six state area of New England by the mid 1700s. Wow. Did not know that. Yeah. Cause there's I think like a handful or two of them now at this point, And they've only re-popped up like re-emerged yeah, in the last like 10, 15 years. Yeah. With the craft distilling up. movement. Mm-hmm. So as New Englanders perfected their craft of rum distillation, uh, making it some of the most affordable alcohol in the market, because again, that molasses was super cheap, they started to seek more sales outlets. Um, so enter again, unfortunately, slave traders who had an unquenchable thirst for this new locally made uh, rum. So by this point, rum accounted for 80% of New England's exports, which probably today it's like lobster or, or something a little less. Yeah, I actually don't know what our... I don't know either. That's a good thing for us to look into, actually. We should look actually. back on that. Um... Now, here's a kind of a bit of unfortunate part of this and like the real history of things coming out. And uh, I think part of this is my own uh, naivete in the region I'm from. So it solidified a slavery dependent economic system, this export of rum and the creation of rum, because the more slave traders and enslaved people who wanted the rum to drink, the more sugar production was needed in order to produce the molasses. So the more sugar you needed to be made in these island nations, mm. the more enslaved people are needed to produce that product on the islands, which is this like vicious, vicious cycle. Yeah. So New England like played heavily, heavily, heavily into the slave trade um, yeah. around the world, not even just in the Americas, around the world, um, which, you know, coming from... This I know, area. coming from New England, we always, you know, obviously our, our history was, our history classes were completely whitewashed and were made to think like, oh, we're from the North. We were anti-slavery and, you know, we had nothing to do with that. But like, obviously peeling back the layers of all of that BS, uh, we're all very culpable. Um, so I'm, I'm not surprised to hear this information. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we're, we're getting the, the truth in, you know, how much New England was actually involved in enslaving people. Yeah. And it wasn't, I'd like to say it wasn't as much like physically happening here. 
Um, that I don't know. I'm sure it was. But the fact that one of our, I think our primary export and, you know, our primary um, contribution to like the colonies and the new world was rum. And that so had to play hugely into just the, the trading of people. It's hard, it's hard to like think about because again, like you said, we're made to feel like we have this whole, not holier than thou, but for lack of a better term, is squeak your clean image in this little right. nestled yeah, corner of the country. We don't have Confederate flags everywhere. Like we're, we're Northerners. Um, but yeah, it's but yeah, important our, to keep in mind that that's actually not the case of our history. Yeah, our ancestors are in this region are, are as, as guilty as anyone else, if not more so sometimes than, than yeah. others in, in some of this. But alas, here we are, 2020. Still trying to learn our lessons from the past. Um, but I digress a little bit. But I feel like I'd re- be remiss in not touching on that just just some. But um, So obviously rum was definitely the drink of choice during these colonial years. And it played a huge role, believe it or not, in sparking the revolution against Britain, the American Revolution. By the 1760s, around mid-early 1760s, America distilled around 4.8 million gallons of rum along the East Coast alone, annually. 4.8 million gallons of rum a year, um, making it much more available than whiskey in major cities such as Boston, which is kind of in our own backyard. Mm-hmm. To make all that rum, they needed to get the, the, the molasses, the sugar product, in from outside because we can't grow our own sugar here. So most of that was coming from French-controlled territory. And, of course, if the money's going to the French, the English were not very happy about that. <laughs> um, so, eventually, this whole, you know, production boom led to the Sugar Act of 19, or 19, good Lord, the Sugar Act of 1764, um, <laughs> where a tax was levied on molasses being imported from French islands. That way, the English could get their cut from all of this right. production. So, this actually is where the early rumblings of the whole no taxation without representation really started. Um, and that really grew stronger with, you know, more and more tax schemes uh, on other goods throughout the colonies um, from from the crown in England. So it was like interesting to hear like the the early rumblings of the revolution started with rum. rum. Right. Because um, we always think of it as tea. Yeah. Well, it's so funny you say that, actually. Um, so in protest, some activists in the States staged a protest um, that has since been overshadowed by one taking place in 1773-ish, I think. Um, So in 1771, the Portsmouth Molasses Party actually came before the the Boston Tea Party. Wow. So the Portsmouth Molasses Party boarded the ship Resolution to save its 100 hogsheads of smuggled molasses. Hogsheads? So the molasses was inside? The molasses was hogsheads, yeah. I had to figure out what that was. I knew it was barrels um, for my time working in like wine and spirits and stuff like that. um, I was imagining they put molasses no, like, inside of dead. I mean, times were tough, but I don't think they were that tough, to be <laughs> honest with you. Um, so I looked it up. A hogshead is roughly equal to 64 gallons or about 240 to 245 liters. But it's a barrel. It's a barrel. So 100 <laughs> hogsheads, 6,400 gallons of molasses wow. on this ship. Which I don't know. I should have figured out how much rum that actually could have made at the time. But sixty-four hundred gallons of molasses was, we'll say, liberated from the resolution in Portsmouth. Um, so, based on the importance of rum in the day-to-day, you know, activity of the colonists, it's really not any surprise that once the war started, it was like held in 
super high regard amongst the sho- the, the shoulders the soldiers, <laughs> the soldiers on the shoulders of the soldiers. Um, so yeah, the soldiers were like rum was super coveted as part of their rations. So one general actually wrote to George Washington, and I quote: "Besides beef and pork, bread and flour, rum is too material an article to be omitted. No exertions ought to be spared to provide ample quantities of it." Give so, the people their rum. Yeah, we. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so. I wonder if we won the war because all of the colonial soldiers were just rummed out of their skulls and had no fear of the giant British military that was bearing down on them. It's a possibility. It's a possibility. At least probably settled the nerves a little bit. (laughs) So what happened, right? Like why, you know, this was clearly a huge building block for the country. So why isn't rum still the national spirit? Well, As early Americans began to expand their territory and people migrated westward, we really began to discover how well grains like wheat and corn could thrive in this country away from the coasts. So that whole central part of the country, you know, today as like the Great Plains, obviously they are amazing at growing wheat, growing corn, rye, things like that. So this is when we started becoming a whiskey nation. You know, by growing and distilling our own grains, as opposed to importing all that molasses, um... We were able to do it ourselves domestically with uh, our own wheat, rye to make, you know, whiskey, bourbon, uh, things like that. Yeah. So since the rum trade relied heavily on importing that molasses from those hot tropical climates, it was about 300% more expensive for consumers to acquire rum than whiskey. Hmm. So as affordable as rum was, whiskey was even more 300% affordable. more <laughs> yeah. affordable, which is no wonder like we eventually became... A whiskey nation and we're our one of our biggest contributions to the world of you know spirits is obviously bourbon right it's like one of the only truly american and creations as far as I that stuff goes i don't remember american history <laughs> to this level of one detail of but at, we're doing this. at one point at what point did the farmers start actually growing grains in the great plains um, it was around 1700s 1800s or so okay. like so like so, not that no, because you think the, the Louisiana Purchase was 1803. Right. And Jefferson bought all that land. Right. Um, so people started settling westward yep. at that point. They kind yeah. of figured. So there like, wasn't like a, a huge time gap between. Not a huge when time rum gap. was no. big and when we get into whiskey and bourbon. Yeah, exactly. Not, not a ton of time at all. Um, I think perfecting it was a different story, but right. like falling into that and becoming a whiskey nation, definitely, you know, it, it didn't take long. Um, but at that point, like rum's popularity definitely declined heavily for like a good hundred years or so from like the early 1800s in through the early 20th century until prohibition hit. So the cocktail world, surprisingly enough, exploded during the 13 years of prohibition through that secretive world of speakeasy. Of course. Yeah. I mean, like <laughs> you take the right away and people are going to do it anyways. And they're going to get more creative with it as well. Exactly. Um, in fact, rum was so popular in these illegal bars that it was hard to come by actual rum because it was hard to get anything of actual, you know, booze production in the States because the feds were cracking down on it so hard. Um, so a lot of it was basically questionable bathtub rum and backwoods hooch that was simply labeled as rum. So a lot of it was like poison liquor, right? Like just stuff that'll make you go blind if you drink too much of it. And it's just say, Hey, this is rum. It's like the equivalent of like a cheese product. Like this is a rum product. <laughs> Pasteurized, processed rum product. <laughs> Delicious. But this period of crafting, you know, exciting cocktails based with rum 
is what led us into that post-prohibition and World War II era of tiki bars. It's one of the things that kind of led the way to that. Um, hmm. Because, I mean, you, you see the, summer, the submergence, the emergence of things like daiquiris. Right. And then people start doing like blended cocktails. Yeah, as more, more tropical things come in from people spending time in the South Pacific yep. in World War II, you get flavors like coconut coming in and a lot of that stuff. Um, which kind of really, and then the cuisines of those parts of the world too, which is how like the tiki bar became a thing, became a thing really. Cause it was, um, things like, um, Don the beachcomber, which was basically that whole push of, they call them Polynesian restaurants, right. um, which is like generally what we would call like the kitschy Chinese restaurants. Um, but yeah, all those flavors kind of came into play and really pushed that whole world forward in the forties, fifties, sixties, where you see that really height of popularity of those types of bars. Uh, but now, obviously, experiencing a resurgence of those in yeah. states. Hey, the tiki drink cocktail. I don't know if it's on the or the tiki drink revolution. If it's like slightly on the back the back burner, um, but the last five or six years or so, huge push right. in like tiki. Yeah, culture. everywhere had a, a, a new tiki drink with yeah. those like fun glassware. Um, I guess there's probably a, a decline in most things related to restaurants right now since yes uh, are, uh, yeah very unfortunate byproduct of, and, uh, of us staying safe in the in the world of covid safe. is yeah the restaurant world is hit hard hit super hard i mean it's a world that's where we met i mean we met working in restaurants i worked yeah. in restaurants for 15 years and we owe our we owe our relationship and our marriage to having met in that world and yep. yeah this uh it's it's hit that world really really heavily and um we can thankfully still sip rum and make our own cocktails in our house. This you know, we're true. very, we're and very actually, lucky. I do think a few restaurants now are allow in Massachusetts are allowing to go cocktails. I heard this in the is, last couple. I of haven't days. actually. I don't know any information about it other than it was just sort of the the governor said it's okay to do. Yeah, which now I really want to explore when yeah. we're done recording. Let's see where we can walk to and yeah, get we'll some to go cocktails. <laughs> um, so that's kind of how we got to today. I mean, I left out huge gaps, but of course we can't sit here for four hours and just listen to me wax poetic about the real deep intricacies <laughs> of rum. Although Laura knows I would be thrilled in doing that if anyone would listen, but I'm pretty sure no one would. So what is your favorite rum cocktail? Oh my gosh. There's so many of them out there that I, I could go to. I think I will stick with a simple daiquiri, to be honest with you. Like sometimes the simplest thing is the best. So rum, lime juice, Sugar, literally in the right proportions, is just this crisp, bright, beautiful, refreshing beverage. Yeah. Um, especially on a hot I day. I agree with you on that. Yeah, that or um, a just a classic blended frothy pina colada. Yeah, on the beach under a cabana. Yeah, well, that's the way to do it. We're not going that. anywhere anytime soon. That so is we'll, true. See, we'll see. Our backyard will have to do. That'll have to do for now. We can watch our grass grow in the meantime as the, the main <laughs> form of entertainment. So. Uh, this is where I want to do some fun facts, some fun facts about rum that I either kind of dropped out of the storyline or just things I kind of discovered towards the enemy researching. But um, I didn't know this, but rum is the oldest commercially distilled spirit in the world. And it's the first one that was produced for pleasure on purpose, as opposed to just being there for medicinal purposes originally. Interesting. Yeah. I did not know that. Now, it's not the oldest spirit in the world, but the oldest commercially Commercial distilled spirit in the world, like made literally manufactured with business models around it, things like that. And Bacardi in San Juan, Puerto Rico, is the world's largest rum producer, um, which I guess I could have guessed, but yeah. I just wasn't really thinking about it. But they produce over six, or sorry, 26,000 gallons of rum a day. 
is hard to even imagine. It's like trying to imagine the vastness of the universe. Your right. brain just stops functioning at a certain point. 26,000 gallons of rum a day, um, which of course is then distributed all around the world. Um, I so like I, Bacardi. Bacardi is great. We have it in our cabinet right now. Yeah. Bacardi, if you're listening, we will gladly take any kind of money for our show. <laughs> Please sponsor us. I know you're not listening, but it's quite all right. Our seven friends and family are going to be listening to this. And thank you for your support. Yes. Yes, indeed. And then thank you for passing this along to Bacardi as well. We love Bacardi. <laughs> Bacardi, superior rum. Okay. <laughs> All right, that's enough of that. Um, so I was talking about the local area recently, you know, Salem, Newport, Boston, um, Medford. Medford rum, which our Medford neighbors. is literally our neighbors. Like our town is right next to Medford. Um, so Medford rum, specifically from the Daniel Lawrence and Sons Distillery, became one of the most sought after rums in the world in its heyday. Really? Yes. They are Medford no longer, rum right? was world renowned, which is so doesn't crazy. Doesn't exist anymore. No, it doesn't exist anymore. I was going to say, unfortunately, no. The distillery closed for good in 1905. Aww. Yes, exactly. But at that point, it had, it had declined quite heavily. Yeah. Obviously, from the the late 1700s, early 1800s. Uh, in fact, the town's economy was built up entirely around the production of rum and their prominence in the area because um, it was all around rum and shipbuilding. So Medford, I knew, was a shipbuilding town historically, but so much of the work that went into shipbuilding in Medford was actually to support the rum trade Interesting. and export from Medford out to around the world. So there was even a free barrel outside of this distillery, Daniel Lawrence and Sons. There was a free barrel of rum just sitting outside the distillery at all times, like a community barrel of rum. Like stop by. You could literally, rum. you could literally just walk up and dip a cup into it. There was like, I think oh, probably so, like a so communal dirty. cup there. That would not be cool in COVID. Yeah, that was not cool COVID. <laughs> Although I guess, I mean, if the rum was proofed enough, like high proof enough, it was sixty percent or more, which I yeah, doubt it was. Yeah, okay, fair, fair. Still disgusting to think about, but it's pretty yeah. cool to think there was literally just a open barrel. I think there was a lid on it, but there was a barrel yeah. of rum sitting outside the door of the distillery, and you could just on your way to work stop by. And drink a half a cup of rum, get a little zip in your, little pep in your step, kind of like a cup of coffee, <laughs> or maybe take some edge off. I'm not quite sure. Depends Whatever on the Whatever you needed it for. So it yeah, was there. You can get your fill whenever you wanted to. You can just walk up and take the rum. Crazy. Uh, now, we've all heard of the drink, the rum runner, yes. right? Classic rum cocktail. So the term rum running most likely originated at the start of Prohibition in the U.S., which again ran from 1920 to 1933, one of the darkest times in the country in modern days, um, when ships from the Western Bahamas transported cheap Caribbean rum to Florida speakeasies. And the people that ran these businesses, they're called rum runners, and the ships were called mm. rum runners as well. So which is kind of where that, that term came from. That's cool. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, right? At least interesting history of the name of a drink and where it right, came from. Yeah. And then when running for the Virginia House of Burgesses in 1758, which was a thing back then, George Washington, we hear about like voter fraud and things like that nowadays and like bribing people. George Washington supplied voters with 28 gallons of rum and 50 gallons of rum punch to secure their vote to the Virginia House of Burgesses. So I don't know if it was like how close it was to election day. Right. If he just like got him liquored up. He's like, vote Washington. Don't forget. Don't forget. I'm your guy. Enjoy that rum. I'm your guy. Who gave you, who loves you? Georgie loves you. Georgie loves you. Georgie loves you. He was actually renowned, actually. He was renowned for um, uh, being kind of a mixologist. George Washington, yeah. He was famous for his, because his his estate was called Mount Vernon. Right. Um, so he was actually known for his Mount Vernon eggnog, 
Uh, I don't remember because they had, there was an actual name for it. I came across in my research, but like, yeah, it was, yeah. I don't think it was like a summer cocktail, obviously. Probably but, not. Um, as holiday parties. But you know, the holiday parties at Mount Vernon were banging because yeah. they were just they had all some sweet ass eggnog, sweet eggnog, which you can drink like a half a cup of before you start getting sick. Uh, and then the last fun fact, I thought this was this was crazy. The British Royal Navy provided a ration of rum to each sailor starting in the early 18th century until 1970. Wow. 1970, they stopped doing it because they were concerned that it was going to cause shaky hands and they weren't going to be able to handle heavy machinery, which I think they should have figured out well before 1970. Yes. Uh, I think I was reading about it. Up until that point, it was pretty much at that time in 1970 was like... It was like the formality. It was was like a traditional thing. Like, I don't think you were getting a daily ration of rum. You might have gotten like a bottle of rum when you signed up for the Navy. But in the earlier days... I think of what I read, it was a pint and a half of rum per two sailors. So basically three quarters of a pint or, I mean, we can round up, right? They were probably sneaking some here and there. So a pint of rum a day per sailor as a ration. That is yeah, and that's a, a lot. That's an English pint. That's not right. a. That's like twenty ounces, as opposed right. to like the U.S. pint, that's which like is sixteen ounces. Like a wake ounces. up with a headache, majorly the next day. Yeah, but I mean, they probably didn't have access to water, like fresh water. Yeah, that's true. Back in the day, so I think the one of the main reasons was they thought that it would actually help prevent scurvy, because most of the time they were mixing it with they were making rum punches with, essentially daiquiris with lime juice, citrus, sugar. So yeah, it was a way for them to prevent scurvy. And just stay effed up all the, t- all the time, <laughs> all the time. Uh, so that's it for fun facts. But I'd be remiss again in not bringing up the fact that I obviously didn't write all of this stuff that I talked about today. Um, so I got to do some research shout outs here. Obviously, at the top, I started with Encyclopedia Britannica. Got a lot of help from thecraftycask.com. Really great article from Hannah Walhut at foodandwine.com. Also a really great book out there called Rum Curious, The Indispensable Tasting Guide to the World's Spirit by a man named Fred Minnick, uh, as well as the wonderful folks at the Medford Historical Society, Hmm. providing some of that great info about the uh, Daniel Lawrence and Sons Distillery in Medford. So that's it. That's our first episode. Awesome. We did it. We did it. We did it. And if you're still listening, you did it too. We did it together. (laughs) We made it through. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Yeah, absolutely. No, so we'll we'll see you next time when Laura is going to teach us about the next topic. Yeah, I'm uh, still deciding what it's going to be. It's probably going to be dessert of some kind. Yeah, let's so be honest with stay each other. Tuned. It's probably going to be dessert-based. That, that's, that's my thing. So. Which is fine. But thanks so much for listening. Stay well, be safe, and we'll see you next time on Where Did This Come From? Take care, everybody. And I talked last. <laughs>